put it all together into a book to really frame up what I consider to be a fundamental change in the evolution of leadership. It's really like a change that probably only happens every 2,000 years. <laughs> We're talking about a major change. Welcome everyone to WorkPod Podcast. Today we have with us Jeffrey Hull. Um, he's a resident expert when it comes to understanding the nuances and the criticality of leadership. And today we will have a ball. We will be learning about how and what and all the five W's and H about leadership. And if you're curious, this would be an interesting conversation to be part of. With that, um, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So um, I'm curious. So walk us through the journey of why coming to the world of leadership. Walk us through um, your past leading to the present. Well, I think it can be divided up into three quick segments. <laughs> you know, each of us has like a career journey that's very convoluted and, you know, nuanced, but mine can probably be summarized into three parts. Number one, I graduated in, from college with a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, philosophy, music, um, which didn't translate into anything very practical, uh, but curiosity and interest in a lot of subjects ultimately led me to work in HR for quite a few years. And working in HR for Booz Allen and Hamilton, one of the large um, consulting firms, I had an opportunity to get involved with coaching and counseling and mentoring programs. And those are the kinds of things that I really enjoyed. So at a certain point in my career, I decided to jump off and go into the entrepreneurial venture. Um, so the second phase of my career was starting with a partner, a leadership development consulting firm in New York, uh, focused on Wall Street firms, sit, um, financial companies, software companies, pharmaceuticals, and we did a lot of leadership trainings and retreats and uh, all of those kinds of activities, customized leadership. During that, I realized that coaching was a really important component of developing a successful leader. And then I also realized that since I did not have a psychology background, I didn't have a lot of deep underpinnings to know how to do that effectively. So I went back to school and got a PhD in psychology, clinical psychology, and the rest is history. I mean, the next phase of my career, which continues, started to involve teaching, writing, coaching executives, and um, basically focusing on the evolution of leadership, as I said, and working with as many different executives in different industries as possible all over the world, which is uh, incredibly you never get bored because it's it's uh, never never the same thing twice. <laughs> that's that's pretty pretty interesting. So I'm I'm curious to to uh, know your perspective. How much of leadership is science vis-a-vis arts? Like how much of the very very aspect of being a great leader is is scientific vis-a-vis an art an arts project? I'm curious. I love that question because you're getting at the title, the subtitle of my book, right? Which is The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World. And it's really, um, it's at the intersection of art and science where the best leadership emerges. And I say that because there is really good data evidence-based research on what it takes for human beings to perform at their best, which didn't really exist until the last 10 or so years. Research around emotional intelligence, research around how the brain works, the neuroscience of effectiveness, of performance, research around fitness, physical fitness, and how the somatic energy of the human being is really important, taking care of ourselves, sleep, nutrition, all the things that we now know. But it impacts communication, it impacts collaboration. So there's a scientific underpinning to being effective in the world as a leader or as a part of a uh, organization. And then when you all go to apply all that research, human beings are complex. Human beings are not as simple as the data that you might amass about you know, the, the underpinnings would tell you that in the real world, it's much more complicated and complex and nuanced. And so there's an art 
to applying the science, especially in today's world where things are disrupted, we have pandemics, we have ecological issues, we have competition, we have social equity problems, we have so many things that leaders have to grapple with. So they need both. They need good, solid scientific underpinnings so that they know that they're on the right track. But they also need to have a good sense of self-awareness and they know their, their own intuitive ways of being. And they need to get good feedback from coaches, from colleagues, from the world to tell them what's working and what isn't working. So I really do believe that effective leadership today is an art, as you said, but it's grounded in science that is um that is interesting so um i was um i think last week so leadership has not changed for when it comes to the the very idea of leading right so we have been leaders they have been le so it was funny like we were watching um one of the so i'm from india so there were like a lot of a lot of cultural things a lot of religious things about um about indian heritage and culture and whatever so hundreds of years back there was a guy called chanakya and and he was very sort of uh, very good strategic thinker when it comes to sort of organizing things and and i was watching this and 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 watching that 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 playbook or the book that that was scripted or what whatever he or she uh, he did um it was fascinating to see how much that is applicable even today right and then and then we realized many of the many of the religious scriptures when we many of them have um amazing ways out to whatever our leadership challenges today are right so from from your vantage point how much of the very aspect of being a good leader has evolved because i think it it it's comical to sometimes think that even the scriptures that were written like couple of hundreds or thousands of years back somehow still holds like so we as a human or our 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 maslow's hierarchy or whatever we call it hasn't changed that much we like we are still very much predictable in when it comes to what wrongs or what rights we are doing what i i wonder did you have you given a, a thought on this oh yeah i think um that the fundamental cultural underpinnings of leadership haven't really changed a lot for thousands of years and that is why what i'm writing about and some others are writing about i'm not the only one is such a fundamental revolutionary shift because you know there's now a whole different frame of reference from hierarchy patriarchy pyramids power dynamics have changed the information age is such that we now have people that are networked and connected all over the world so you know even in institutions or governments where they still cling to like an authoritarian type of um cultural leadership dynamic or narrative but even in those environments there are people that are constantly chipping away because they have access to information you know the technology that's available through the internet and through other means is creating this flattening effect mm. and also you know the number of the the amount of diversity is shifting the emphasis from being a very male masculine dominated energetic to being a more multicultural and a lot more fem feminine and and you know that you could say that it's male or female i actually don't make that distinction i think of it more as masculine versus feminine and the integration of the two and these are huge shifts if you think about flattening if you think about democratizing through information whether it's allowed by the institutions or not it's still happening if you think about networked organizational dynamics that are more community based rather than hierarchical if you think of the pace of change that's taking place i mean it was for hundreds of years organizations would pretty much stay the same <laughs> so the leaders would just pass the nobility or the you know whatever the kingpins were you know they were the owners economically they were the owners and the overseers of the land whoever owned the land all of those things haven't hadn't changed for for centuries and now as we all know it's fundamentally changing 
So the definition of what it means to be effective as a leader can no longer be the same. And the people that are used to be kept out of leadership roles, you know, one of the things that I like to point out is that there's really no such thing as a C-suite anymore. Hmm. The C-suite is a artificial barrier that was created by the people at the top to make it seem like, you know, there's a, there's a very special group of folks that are sitting at the top of the organization and the rest of them are employees. But that's becoming so much more permeable. You know, there are organizations now that are being led from the bottom up. There are entrepreneurs that are creating environments where they're basically creating a team that's not hierarchical, that is trying to get the best out of everyone. So these are pretty fundamental changes, no question about it. That's interesting. So um, I was thinking about um, um, what you're saying about um, the power that leadership holds. So I'm, I'm curious um, to understand. So when you're a leader, you work very closely with the culture of an, of an organization, right? So either, or you have a slightly more influence than maybe a, a guy or, um, or like um, on the totem pole on that, right? So now um, from your vantage point, when you look at leadership, how much of culture is uh, designed by a leader or, or does a leader is picked by a culture so like from when when you mix the two when sort of when you take an organization and this particular individual which one should gravitate towards what like who who is the sun and who is the planet in that conversation like i'm curious it's a great question i think this is another one of those areas where the research is starting to give us some really good data and some good information about how cultures actually form and the answer to your question is both that the leaders do, whoever steps up as the founder or the creator or the leader of an organization does have a very strong influence on the culture. But, you know, I work with entrepreneurs. It's a great example. I just give you one real life example. I was working with a CEO who started a software company. After about two years, three years, he had about 100 employees. And he said to me, you know, Jeff, I think we should start thinking about the culture. I need to start focused on what kind of culture we have. And I said to him, well, it's about two years too late. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? And I said, because the culture forms the minute you have three people, five people. Culture is created by tribes. Tribes are formed mm -hmm. as soon as people form groups. And the research now shows that human beings will create a culture even without a leader. The culture in that organization had already started being formed. So here's the thing. He thought that that was bad news because mm. I was telling him he was two years too late. But I said to him, you know, it's actually good news because you're allowing your firm, your company to develop a culture. And now you need to figure out what it is. And then you need to influence it in ways that bring out the best in everyone. And so he was like, well, what do I do? And I said, well, one of the things you can do is you can start to investigate by having conversations with groups of your employees in different group, different functions, and having them come together and ask questions. What are the values that we follow here? Why do you work here? What do you care about? What it makes you want to come to work in the morning? What is great about working at this organization? And the CEO said to me, this is so much fun. I can listen and learn about my own company. And I said, yeah, and then you can influence. Because when you hear the bumps, when you hear the things that you'd like to see shift and change, then you can have an influential voice. So it's really to your question, creating culture starts at the very day one of an organization. And it's a dance between the leaders and the people. They will do it together. But the more aware they are of what they're doing, the more likely they'll get the kind of culture that they want. So, you know, you cannot wait too long, or it really can be too late. Interesting. So, um, I think there was, I was reading about a study um, and, and, and I think there was a study on the impact of CHRO or, or impact of CEO on an organization. And, and, and they were sort of um, uh, figuring out if had the decision been, being a, been a coin toss compared to what they decided, like how, how much different that situation would have been. Right. And they feared that 
CEO's ability or decision making is coming very close to a coin toss scenario, right? So if <laughs> so, I think that's because we are living in the age of data. So now we can we can sort of create this nuanced approach and trying to figure out how much of an incentive is CEO getting by being on the top when his competency is similar to a coin toss at some point, right? So yeah. when you look at leadership from from say those decisions point of view. Right, so I am basically I am leading for my decisions that I'm 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 influencing this organizations for, and then there's an argument that okay, if had there been a coin toss, probably we would have both uh, done equal damage to the organization. <laughs> so so what I I'm curious like what's your take about and 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 that is speak to something about the science or the artist uh, or the uh, like being an artisan on that on the top. How do how do you contempt how do you comprehend that thought? I'm curious. Well, it's a really interesting question. I'm not sure I have the magic answer, but I think uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I was also reading a recent research study of entrepreneurs, and um, I'm forgetting the university where they studied a group of entrepreneurs and they separated them into two groups. And one group they they um, set up to build their company using empirical data. So they used a science-driven format to build the company, to figure out the business model, to figure out the product, to figure out how to structure the company. And another group they used as a control group where they just let them have entrepreneurs, figure out what they want, and do it just like they normally do, right? And they studied them for two years. And how much difference do you think the scientifically driven company did compared to the other company? I think that the data science in me says, uh, the same, similar. I was actually about ten percent better. Okay, not so there was so there was evidence that the empirically scientific driven decision making process did have a positive influence, but it was nowhere near as much as what they were thinking. They were thinking that you know this would be 30, 40, 50 percent better success rate, and it wasn't true. So you know the the reality is that I think science and understanding how culture works and how organizations come together as a tribe and how communities build and how teams perform is very valuable. But I think we underestimate the influence, or we overestimate actually the influence of individual leaders. And then the other thing that's interesting is that the studies have shown that it's not so much what the leaders say that is really influential by what they do. It's the nonverbal. So this is also connected to what I wrote about in my book, which is that you don't have to be a charismatic leader with what I call the alpha heroic personality. You can actually be very influential by being quieter, by having a different kind of framing, by being very mindful and present people you know, studies of trust and the neuroscience of connection have shown that people will follow a leader who's quite quiet if they trust what that leader is saying. And so sometimes it's nowhere near as important for the person to be loud and charismatic. And, and this is now being demonstrated by the science of influence. So these things are all changing as we're working. And I don't, as I said, I don't have a magic formula, but it's fascinating to see the evolution because we're coming to know so much more about what leadership works, does and works than we no, have. I, I, th I think, uh, um, and thank you for shedding light on it because um, you're spot on. So um, why I ask you this question is so in, 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 in sort of in our day, so today we live in the world of data and AI, right? So it's everywhere we, we hear about that word a lot. And 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 if you if you wear your statistician hat, you said yes, coin toss and CEO, coin toss wins because I don't have to pay anything to the coin toss. But then <laughs> what what you're saying uh, when when you wear your um, sort of organizational psychology hat, right? And you say, imagine an organization with no leader, right? So imagine uh, the physiological or, or or the mental changes that happens in an organization when you realize the topmost guy is just a coin toss, right? And that you cannot quantify with any research, right? Because that's the emotional, that's the well-being, that's the Maslow's hierarchy. 
that you're totally missing out on once you take the leader out of that equation, right? And right. and I think from that vantage point, um, I totally agree with you that um, having having a leader, um, it has the non-verbal cues that are defining that organization is is is, is probably doing a more impact than than sort of those statistical. Uh, um, anomaly or a statistical significance on the success or the failure of an organization. Right. Yeah, they've studied engagement and the research is beginning to show that people don't stay at a company because of the CEO unless they work directly with the CEO. And then the influence is very important. But once a company becomes, and I shared this with my client who is getting to be 100 people, 200 people, 300 people, they like to know what the CEO's vision is. They want to hear it. But the reason they stay with the company is because of the leader of their team, the leader of their close-knit community. And it's, it's interesting because it to, intuitively, if you step back and you think about it, human beings are tribal. So if your CEO is 3,000 miles away and he is not on video talking to you every other day, then the person you really care about is who is your day-to-day team? And do you trust them? Do you feel safe with them? Can you try out new ideas with them? Can you have an impact on them? And that's gonna help you decide whether you stay with the company and whether the company is where you wanna have a long-term relationship. And you know, a lot of the things that we used to think were key to success, like paying people more money. Um, beyond a certain point, it's not anywhere near as influential. So interesting. it's interesting. And, 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 and I am, I'm curious to know your point of view on, so is, is, is a good led organization more like a king or, or an autocracy or, or in, so let's, let's take the, the negatives out. Let's just say there's a king. Right and and um, and so say there's a merit, meritocracy that that exists there, or do you think it is a democratic system of a um, lot of elected officials? When you think about a, a, a good led organization, do you know like which which kind of model resonates better with a good led organization? I'm curious. I mean, the way, to, the way that I would answer that question is that there are strengths and weaknesses to both authoritative organizations, hierarchical organizations, and dem- democratic participative organizations. You know, the authoritative organization and I, is very good in an emergency. Think about it. If you're flying a plane, you, you want the person in the pilot's seat to be authoritative. Mm. If, you're, if you're having surgery, you really hope that the surgeon is running the show, hmm. right? You don't want him to be a Democrat, hmm. democratic. Hmm. You don't want him to, you don't want him while your body's open to be saying, so should we do this? Why don't we vote on whether or not this person is going to, you know, you don't want that. But on the other hand, if you're trying to run an organization to come up with creative ideas, hmm. the innovative, which is what we need in today's world to solve all the huge issues economic issues, social justice issues, environmental issues, if you're really trying to be creative, then you don't want a pyramid with just a few smart people at the top because you're not getting the talent from everyone. So a much more creative way of organizing would be a democratic or a consensus-driven organization where you encourage people to step up with their ideas because you really want to get the creativity from as many people as possible. So I think it really depends on the context, but I would summarize by saying that where we're headed and what I pointed to in my book is that the human race on planet earth does not have the luxury of it anymore of just being top down. Mm. We have to, we have to become more democratic because we really need to listen to the talent that we have in order to solve all the problems. So it's, it's almost like it's flipped. It used to be that you could run an organization for hundreds of years with fairly simple group at the top, but that's not going to be sustainable. 
So now I think we have to, as organizations, as entrepreneurs, hopefully even as countries, we have to start to broaden out our uh, acceptance of leadership from around the company, from around the group, not just from the top. So if, if, if we see organizations today, right? So we, we even started um, to hear flattening of an organization, again, uh, decreasing the depth and, and making it more broader. So in that construct, um, how is leadership being changed or leadership needs to evolve? To, to, I'm, I'm always curious. So if, if there's, a, there's a chain of command, you know who to go. Like there is, there's a chain of command and its chain is well established, whatever is going on. In, in a flattening organization, many times it's just it's it's slightly broad when it comes to um, so how how are the leadership landscape change between these two templates of of say IBMs of the world versus maybe now where Apple is heading to it's still not there but more more sort of flattened and more sort of out. I'm curious. Yeah. What what do you think? It's a great question. I think the simplest way. To understand the shift in energy is, and I do this with all of my clients that are very senior leaders, because they are in the middle of this that we're talking about, right? Is to step back and reflect on the distinction between power over others and power with. And being in a dynamic where you are empowering others to work with you in a partnership, in a collaborative dynamic, does not mean that you give up power. It's sharing power. It's supporting the empowerment of others. But if there's an emergency or if there's a crisis or there's a really difficult decision, you can still take back the power or you can serve it up to the others and say, you know what? I think you're the most expert person on this subject. So I think you should have the power over the decision. But the core theme is really the awareness between the distinction of power over and power with. And the more that leaders, whether it's in an IBM or a startup or anywhere else, the more they become aware of that, then they can choose. Because at the end of the day, it's really about a choice. What is the kind of power that's going to work most effectively in this situation? And then they can decide minute by minute. And I literally mean minute by minute. I mean, the mm. other theme of my book is leadership agility. Mm. And agile leaders can do power over in the morning and power with in the afternoon. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be three months of power over and two months of power with. I mean, it can be minute to minute. And I have a case study in my book that I wrote about, which was one of the things that started me on that journey was that I worked with a surgeon at a very prestigious hospital. And he was very power over at seven o'clock in the morning because he was saving lives. Mm. But at four o'clock in the afternoon, when he was leading a meeting with his colleagues, it's completely different energy. Interesting. Wow. He stood back, he handed off the power, and he was a collaborator, he was a listener. So it's, it can be both. I think Which that's, is a that's, really big step for a lot of leaders. <laughs> yeah, well, I think th this is this is fascinating. Like, if you can flip, because I think sometimes it it's very very hard to to be that agile. I think you you're you're actually um, um, spot on. So, on that note, what do you think are some of the tenets of a good leader? Like, so from from your vantage point, this is a great example. What what you what what you what you what you told, but. Um, if if i if i i want to be a great leader like what are some of the tenets that i should start to evaluate in me what do you think you start with having a reflection and hopefully getting some feedback from a coach or from a mentor or you know someone you trust about your strengths it's really valuable at any point in your career to actually be able to articulate what you know you're good at. And so few people can do it. I, I mean, I, I ask my clients, so tell me what are the top three things that you do really well? Well, I don't know, I'm not sure, I don't know. People say that I do this. Like, so number one is having awareness about your strength. 
And the reason that's so valuable is because those very same strengths are usually all liabilities. So your top three strengths are usually your top three weaknesses. Mm. So if you start by having that sense of awareness, then you can start to play the instrument of yourself as a leader and expand the repertoire. So for example, I know I'm really good at being a great communicator. I have great stories. I have a great sense of humor. I keep people engaged. Okay, so that's great. That's a strength. When is that a liability? Oh, Jeff, that's never, it's never a liability. Oh, well, some of your colleagues seem to think you talk too much. You take up a lot of space. You tell too many jokes when they're trying to get work done. You try to influence everybody by telling stories when actually they want data. Hmm. Hello, all of a sudden you just found out that the thing that you do really well is actually overused. So that's the kind of thing I would recommend anyone who's aspiring to be a leader, even at a very young age, even when you're in graduate school or you're just starting out in your career, start to pay attention. What do you, so the two things I would, what your strengths are, what you're good at, and also what you love, which is kind of a cliche, but I think it's important to know your passion. What are you drawn to? Whenever I work with a client who does not really, who had lost their passion, it happens during different times in your life, even if you're very successful. I've had them say to me, I don't really know, Jeff. I'm not, inter I'm not sure what I'm passionate about anymore. A very simple way to find out. What do you read when you pick up the New York Times or the, Boston, or the Boston Globe? Pick up a big newspaper or online on your iPad. What do you go to if you have no assignment? Oh, I go to the travel section. Oh, well, why do you read about the travel section? Oh, because I love to travel. Oh, you just told me you didn't know what you love. Oh, well, Oh, I go to the real estate section. Well, what about real estate? Oh, because I love architecture and I love seeing what's going on in the real estate market and I love the economics of it. Oh, so you have something you love. Oh, I read the sports section. Oh, really? Why? You see my point. I mean, we do know what we're passionate about. We just don't have it in our awareness all the time. So passion, values, strengths, those are the places I'd start. I think, so you, you're raising a very interesting point. And, 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 um... And I want to talk, take a slight detour, and I want to talk okay. about this, your perspective as a coach, right? right. So um, leadership coach. So when when I was a working me, and I, 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 I left that job and started being an entrepreneur, buying a leading me, right? So, and and one of the, th one of the starkest um, revelation that I had was how much I was losing just running and not stopping and thinking what I'm doing, right? So as an employee, as a worker, you're too busy executing your day and out. Like you're, you want to crank, you want to crank some work. You want to see few managers happy. You are delivering, right? So that's that's your life's mission is make make the upper leaders happy. So you exist. Yeah. But then when you stop and then you now you are being on, on on a leadership role. Then the the day I had a coach. The life transformed, and many of my colleagues felt the same way. Right? They they all had this aha moment of what? Like, am I just because of these tiny things I'm missing out on that freaking right? And I could have been like, I could I could have been ten x better. Right. And I think you raise a very interesting point, right? So not knowing about what what excites us, what what is passionate, uh, what sort of we are passionate about. So I'm I'm curious to know as 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 a leadership coach, right? And whenever I, I, I see a coach, I first I thank them for whatever they're doing and saving humanity and a lot of productivity <laughs> from, 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 from making the other guy hopefully see the reflection of what they are. But on, on the other side, I feel how much is there's a deficit of that kind of uh, talent pool, right? So I wish when I was a worker, I had access to, say, a coach. Or I had access to just some, um, you call it mentor, you call it coach, you call it like whatever you call it, who just not responsible for my productivity, who just look at me as me and help me navigate my happiness in my work. 
So when when you see that landscape, like I, I'm curious to know, did you get a chance to think about how much we would be less dying of heart attack if we are slightly living while we are working, right? So it's it's not a it's a not a, a huge leap. It just just feel what you're anything you are you are raising a very interesting point. If you just know what you're passionate about and you just give tiny bit to that, now suddenly you're enjoying your work. It's not a work anymore. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that I, one of my passions in life is to turn everyone I know into a leader and to turn everyone I know into a coach. And the reason it's both is because the best leaders mm. are those that are open to coaching, receive coaching, and get the benefit of coaching. And then they learn to do it themselves. They learn they understand, they experience the value of coaching, and then they seek to become coaches themselves. And so if you, if you create an, an organ, if you think about it, if you create an organization where coaching is one of the key attributes of the leaders, it's going to be a very powerful environment because people will feel drawn to trust and share with each other in ways that, that prompt everyone to grow. And that's, you know, that's what we need in this world is for everyone to have that experience. I mean, we all know what it would be like. Many of us had a great teacher when we were in high school. We, we look back or junior school and we think I had one teacher, mm. you know, when people ask me who influenced you, you know, there's a, I went back in my yearbook and I saw one person <laughs> who wrote, you know, I believe that you will have an amazing career one day. I will see your name at Harvard. That actually really happened. I was 13 years old and I thought, that's crazy. I'll never be at Harvard. I don't have anything that's going to live. I don't have any money. I'm not going to Harvard. Guess what? I am faculty at Harvard. And that teacher inspired me. But he wasn't easy. He gave me tough feedback on my papers. It was like, you know, you're, I'm sure you had a couple of those, right? Yes. We look back and we think, gosh, I wish I had more of those. <laughs> <laughs> so we need more of that. That's my passion. So um, managers, I want, to, I want to take a perspective on from your leadership vantage point, what is the difference between a leader and a manager? I'm curious. I think it's an unnecessary question. <laughs> I, I think that um, there's a historically known narrative that distinguishes between leadership and management. So management is execution and uh, controlling the outcome of activities and making sure that the people that are, you know, handling different activities are doing their jobs and all of that. Um, and leadership is supposed to be some kind of broader narrative that's more strategic and visionary and sort of sets the tone for the organization, maybe a little bit more distant um, from the day-to-day. -day. Uh, but I personally think that's a lot of BS. Um, I, I think those are all false dichotomies. I think management is something that good leaders do when they need to do it. And leadership is what the best managers learn to do. And so I think we've, you know, as a culture in the West in particular, I think we've wasted a lot of time with these kind of false mm. narratives. Like, are you a manager or are you a leader? Like, who cares? What you need to be is creating an environment where everyone lives out their full potential as a human being in the environment where you have influence. If you want to call it management, it's management. If you want to call it leadership, it's leadership. You know, the distinction that you're asking about, and it's a very valid question. Mm. So I don't mean, I don't mean to be dismissive, mm. but the question itself evolved out of an industrial age mindset. Frederick Taylor, back in the early 20th century, created structures when Henry Ford, you know, built cars. 
that needed something called industrial psychology and management science. But when you think about what they were trying to do is they, they were trying to reduce human beings to machines. And a hundred years later, which is almost exactly, it's probably about a hundred years exactly, we are doing exactly the opposite. We already have all the machines we need. And what we need to do is to stop seeing human beings as machines. Because we have AI, we have robots, we have all that, and we can, and they become more accessible all the time. So we can automate just about anything. What is left for humans then to be is creative, artistic, solving problems, creating a world. So I'm not really interested in the distinction between leadership and management. I think that the whole thing kind of came out of a different time. Mm. We don't live in that time anymore. So I'm not sure if you like that answer. <laughs> no, I, I think I think uh, it it makes sense. It it definitely makes sense. And so as so when when you're leading an organization and when you bring in people, you I think as a leader you pick a lot of and you you're right, you're right in saying that a lot of BS about uh, you don't want to be a manager, you want to be a leader. And many times that that distinction was so if you are if you are a manager uh, or or if you are so called man called manager in an organization, you always try to sort of either they either they be belittle about your effort and saying no you should be managing uh, uh, you should be leading not managing, and right. sometimes it gets very very hazy as you rightly said that. Uh, it's very difficult to distinct are you a manager or are you a leader or how to distinct between the two. So I it's think just you... art, to me it's artificial. Yeah. You know, I mean, think about it in, in my example of a surgeon. When the surgeon is doing surgery and I watched, he's very much in execution mode. Mm. Hand me the scalpel, hand me the, and so it's very tactical. So that's, that would be management, right? He's not sitting up above watching going, you do this and you do this and you do this. No, he's right in there doing it. And it's like saying that the architect is above the construction people. Now, on one level, the architect might have the plans, might have the bigger picture, but I don't know if you've ever worked with an architect, but every architect I've ever worked with, they love to get their hands dirty. Yeah. They're, in, they're in there bugging. The con they're like, the plumbing goes this way, and I bought it this way, and I don't want it like that way. And the construction guy is like, get out, get out. You're supposed mm. to be the architect. Mm. And then my construction workers who renovate, one of them renovated my house, he came up with this beautiful design. I'm like, thinking to myself, oh, you're just a contractor. And he's like, but I'm an artist. I love, that's what makes him a great contractor is because he's more than a contractor. He's, a, he's an artist. So, the, you know, the distinction is really a false distinction. And the best leaders manage and the best managers lead. No, I think that's beautifully put and, and, and thank you for enlightening on that. So from your vantage point, what are some of the misconceptions when it comes to leadership? Today, so when someone comes to you, what are some of the misconceptions that you find that people have about leadership? I'm curious. Oh yeah. Well, number one, I already mentioned that you have to be charismatic. I don't, I don't find that to be true at all. There's no science that demonstrates that. Number two, that you have to be more senior, that you have to be more experienced. Um, yes, it can help but it's not required. I was working with a CEO of this startup for a couple of years and he, as I said, wanted to build the culture of the organization. I in encouraged him to have engagement conversations as we discussed. And he asked me, who should I have facilitate those discussions, cross-functional discussions of values? And, and I said, because he thought it should be only the senior people. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, why don't you invite send an email to the whole company and ask who's interested. See what happens. 24-year-old woman from Venezuela, beautiful, young, brilliant Latina, wrote to him and said, I love this idea. This is something that I've always thought we should do is build the culture from the, build it from the ground up. And I love this company. Can I help facilitate? And he was like, 
Jeff, should I let this 24-year-old woman facilitate conversations? Well, you know the punchline. She was excellent at it. She's now running the engagement process for this whole company that now has 300 people. So, you know, that's another myth that you have to have a certain amount of experience or be a certain age. That doesn't mean that every single 22-year-old, I'm managing one right now, actually, they don't all want to be, they're not all capable of running the company, but they shouldn't be dismissed. You know, they should be listened to and they should be nurtured. So those are some of the myths, I would say. Um, and, you know, there's a long list. I can probably go on for a long time, but that's, that's <laughs> No, I, I think, point. yes. So, so thank you for walking us through that. So now let's spend a few minutes on the book. Okay. So um, definitely love the book. Um, and I think what I particularly like about the book is how you laid out compartmentalized leadership from like mental and sort of you, you talk about emotional and then you talk about semantics of being a leader. Right. Walk us through the, the process of uh, how do you see leadership? I think when I was, I, I was reading this book, it was pretty, it was interesting that how you laid it out and say, okay, this is, so walk us through your journey about writing this book and how do you, um, yeah. Well, I think what I basically the the summary from the framework came from research that I did with about 1200 coaches. So a lot of coaches that I had discussions with, focus groups, interviews, so that I could find out what are the coaches being asked to work on with the leaders of today. And it came out in certain categories, decision making, communication, collaboration, being authentic, creating an engaged environment. So those turned out to be the different domains based on the research of what folks were working on, emotional intelligence, for example. And then I recognized in my own practice that there are three fundamental components to all of those activities. There's the cerebral, there's the thinking process that you go through in decision-making, communicating, all of those, collaborating. Then there's the emotional context because human beings don't do anything that doesn't have an emotional underpinning. You know, if you think about trust and you think about safety and you think about communicating, there's always an emotion. It's in your eyes, it's in your face, it's in your sense of wellness, right? So there's an emotional component. And then the physical presence is something that very few people have really written a lot about, but those, what I call the somatic energies of a leader, how you sit, how you use your hands, even now on video, this is, a, this is important, like how we're present. Those things are actually really important in terms of creating the kind of environment for engagement and for collaboration. So that's why I came up with those categories and the three domains, cerebral, emotional, and somatic. And then, as you know, in the book, there's case studies for basically how to think about your style as a leader. Are you kind of what I call the alpha, sort of the rational, driven, fact-driven, decisive kind of leader, which is more traditional? Or are you more flexible, more democratic, more consensus, more of a curious, listening kind of leader? And then everything in between. And the fundamental theme of my book is the goal, as we mentioned earlier, is you need to develop your agility to be able to do it all. And it's a lifelong journey. So you find out where you start, and then you look to expand. And that's ultimately how I frame the... And that's why the book is called Flex, because at the end of the day, that's what we need, right? Is to develop agile, flexible leaderships. So when you're writing this book, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm curious to, uh, to learn from you, who should think about leadership? Like, for, number one, so who, who is this book for? And number two... In an organization, when is the time to think about improving your leadership chops? I'm curious, like from your vantage. I mean, I think the book can be useful as a, as a tool for just about anyone that's at a certain level of either in a very important leadership role. The book will help you think about how a coach, for example, would work with you to expand your repertoire. If you're in a what I would call the next generation leaders, this book is designed to accelerate the process for you so that you could step up faster 
And it's like having a coach, right? Where you can excel because that's what coaching gives you. And then I, finally, I mean, I think if you're at a more junior level or if you're still a student, because I know some of my colleagues are using this book in their management classes or their leadership business classes, I would say it's to help the students start to reflect on do they want to be a leader? And if so, what do they need to develop? It's like a fitness instructor for leadership. You know, what do you need to work on? What muscles do you need to work on? If you're already a great communicator, how could you even be better? So, I think that's so. Whenever I, whenever I see books on leadership, I think one thing that I find really fascinating is so we had this lot of uh, internal debate in, in in even my organization when it comes to what it means to be a leader, and and and, and many times sort of I have used that word saying that leadership is a tool, right? So don't think of it as that this, you want to be a leader. It's something that. So if, if if we understand the chemistry of brain, right, we all share the same chemistry. The ingredients are almost the same. And if you are younger, you have probably the better mechanics uh, working and the better chemistry working than the older guy or the more seasoned guy, right? So they have their biases. They have a lot of other nuances going on. So, right. so you always sort of see that maybe if we give these books to to a guy or a gal early on in their career saying, okay, read this or read some, some sort of, some of these content and just keep it in mind as, and, and, and I think you rightly pointed out that um, they will, it, it, it's like a muscle, right? So you don't know when you will need it, but it's good to know that you are working on that muscle. So sometime right. if the time comes and maybe again, the, we have the same ingredients that probably will lead us to the same solution. So I, I'm curious, like, what's, what's your thought? Well, yeah, I totally agree with everything you're saying. And I would say that the other thing that's really fundamentally important to me in writing the book and in disseminating the information is that until the last decade or so, there have been a lot of people on the planet who would never think of themselves as possibly being a leader. And they might never have the opportunity. And that's changing. And then if they had thought about being a leader, they would think they had to do it in the way that all of the white guys that have been doing it for the last 2000 years do it. And that's also changing. So, you know, it's one of my passions to expand the horizons of what's possible for this multicultural, multinational world that we live in. So that people who have never thought of themselves as being potentially stepping into leadership will not only consider it a, a, a possibility, but actually really do it, really step up. And, you know, I, I think that that is what we're seeing happening, you know, and they're, and they're finding ways to lead that are not necessarily by following the old model. They can create their own model. And that's why I wanted to be very flexible in my approach to leadership. And I also don't really denigrate the more traditional authoritative leaderships. You know, I, I had a group of senior executives at a bank recently that I was talking about the book. And at one point, one of the older white guys raised his hand and he said, so do you want me to just jump out the window, Jeff? And I, <laughs> and I said, please don't. We're on the 60th floor of a building. This was pre-pandemic. I said, I think that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> And he said, well, what is my role then if you don't really want to have these old white guys running the planet anymore? And I said, I love that question because there's so much wisdom. There's so much knowledge. There's so much talent that you can bring to the next generation. But just have your eyes and ears open that they don't have to lead the way you did it. They can learn from you. But you can learn from each other. And there's a difference between mentoring someone to become like you. Mm. That's more like paternal, like dad and son or what dad and child, right? But you can be a partner and be a mentor. So he was, he was much happier. He didn't jump out the window. <laughs> I said, no, there's a lot of value. In, uh, but the world is changing. You know? And he knows it. And I personally think that's a good thing. No, that's that's pretty fascinating. So, by the way, so thank you so much on on um, on on helping us understand leadership. I can go on and on on this. I think it's it's pretty fascinating. And and um, 
so let's let's work on uh, let's go on a, on a next segment of on our okay. conversation so we call it rapid fire and okay. and the idea behind it so i'll i'll usher out a word or a small sentence and then whatever comes to your mind a word or sentence just um, and then and then just let, let us know and if you want to take a deeper dive be at it but the, but the idea is just whatever comes to your mind be snappy okay awesome so let's do that so startups um the future they are the that's where the creativity starts entrepreneurship everyone that's the kind of world i want to create is where i want everyone to be an entrepreneur failures so what was it failures oh failures ah necessary learning steps along the way <laughs> growth the lifelong journey of living out our full potential culture sorry culture oh culture uh it's what ties us all together as a human tribe leadership it's what we do when we get out of bed in the morning we lead our day everyone is a leader we just have to own it grow it expand it nurture it and use it in ways that solve the big problems of our planet i think that's that's the that's the most um, it's the most interesting and innovative uh definition of leadership i heard but i hope it's true many days i feel it's it's a beautiful effort <laughs> uh disruption inevitable it's what we live in it's what we're going to continue to live in and we need to learn to be agile to address it to respond skill of the future what of the future a skill skill of the future um skill of the future uh what came to my mind is the word um interconnectivity and by that i mean really learning how to read each other effectively like really a, a different depth of knowing each other it's going to be an important skill future of organizations uh unclear unknown i think that uh business models are going to be transformed amazing ways over the next couple of decades and i'm not sure that many organizations are ready for it <laughs> uh future of leadership future of leadership is bright as long as we focus on self awareness as so, a core so so you strongly believe they will not be replaced by a coin toss no not any time <laughs> not any time soon awesome so uh, thank you so much for um, uh, for playing with uh, rapid fire with us so sure. now let's let's spend few minute on your personal journey um so we ask all of our guests to share um, some of the qualities that has shaped them become what they have become what are some of the some of the qualities that you attribute your success to i'm curious um well i think you mentioned one of them <laughs> uh I, i mean i would i would start by saying curiosity because you know i was one of those kids who couldn't decide what to major in in college because i wanted to major in everything um i loved every single subject except economics cuz i wouldn't i couldn't really quite get it but i think i would love it today um but i love science i love math i love music i love i was i wound up being a philosophy and music major cuz i couldn't figure out so 
curiosity is definitely part of been my journey. Um, but then some failures along the way. And I think that uh, that's been a benefit because it's made me it's made me more humble. And that's another quality that we didn't talk about a lot today, but I think it's a really important quality for anyone who aspires to be a leader is to find out where your arrogance lies and where your narcissism is, because we all have a dose of it from childhood probably and from our family. But, you know, perfectionism and arrogance will get us all killed. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that uh, I look back on my failures. Um, I can give you one quick example. I was about 23 years old when I was hired at a very prestigious software company, and I had my first secretary. And I was really right out of college. And I told her she had to go do the X, Y, and get coffee and make copies and do all this. And after about two weeks, my boss came to me and he said, Jeff, your secretary is not a dog. They are a human being. And I said, oh, but that's what they're for, right? He's like, no, you can make copies. You can get your own coffee. We're not living in 1940. I was like, that was a big wake-up call. <laughs> so, you know, and there's been a few other failures along the way. But I think that, it, yeah, th those are important steps. You know, when things don't go well, turning them into a learning journey for me has been important. I think I think that's that's pretty interesting because I, I totally agree with you because failures are something that as a leaders, many times you're not incentivized to share, like even not not even accepting your failures, but even show, showing that you're vulnerable, showing that you had fails used and, and, and showing your scars in public. Again, many times you just, it's, it's frowned upon when it comes to sort of and and actually leaders have a lot more scars to show they have more scars than the, than the success so they can actually educate people that they, they, it's it's human to be a like whatever right so i totally agree with you i think i wish and and maybe you, when you said it's about being masculine and feminine maybe it has to do something with that like making sort of more instead of saying no no i have to be this this sort of this alpha or whatever that that that's called Instead of being more agile and saying, "Okay, no, they are. I'm a human. There are things that it, I think it's it's a pretty. I wish there there world would be a lot more responsive to failures, like and not panic out than when leaders are failing. Not everything is failing, so it's it's, it's pretty interesting. I, I mean, it's hard because it's painful. You know, I mean, it's a sense of uh, shame and. You can, you obviously, if you're a very highly achieving person and all of a sudden you don't do well or something doesn't go well, it's not easy to sit with. So, but over time, you can reflect and learn and look back and realize, oh, you know what? That was the, probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And Absolutely, yeah. so those, those are important components of my awesome. journey. Thank you so much for sharing that. So um, what are some of the favorite reads um, that, that have influenced you or you're reading right now, whatever you can share besides Flex? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't read Flex, although I do occasionally need to look back on it. You, you, you uh, lived Flex. So, yeah. Exactly. I, um, I'm loving uh, two or three things that I've been reading. All I tend to read a lot of things at once, but uh, there's a wonderful book called The Listening Society by an author named Hansi Freinach. And it's really a wonderful journey on the development of society. And he weaves psychological development with societal development. So it's like a systemic view. And it's pretty intense reading, but it's also about what the world needs to do in order to overcome a lot of these challenges that we face. Um, so, so I like that. It's called The Listening Society. Another book that's written along the same lines, I love anything written by Charles Eisenstein. Mm -hmm. um, he's written some pretty amazing reflections on, this, on the economic system, on the health of society. Um, and then my other new favorite um, is a woman named Nora Bateson, who is the daughter of Gregory Bateson, the famous philosopher. And she, uh, she writes about something called Warm Data. And uh, I'm forgetting the name of her book, but just look up Nora Bateson. 
What's fascinating about her is that she writes about the challenge of being too focused on a data-driven world, that there is a, a real obstacle to our addiction to what we call empiricism or data science or objectivity. And so she's offering up what she calls warm data, which is a wonderful phrase, because basically what she's saying is you need to blend data and systems and science with intuition and art and poetry. And then the context feels broader. And when the context feels broader, then the solutions to problems emerge from that. It's a really interesting writer. She's a great writer. Oh, pretty awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Now, last but not the least, so if you want our listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, what would that be? So what would be a parting thought to our listeners and viewers? Well, I think the fundamental theme of my work in the world is to do what I can to help us solve our biggest problems, which are political, economic, social justice, ecological. There's so many challenges. And I really believe that we need everyone to see themselves as a leader in solving those problems. And so that's the parting thought that I leave with everyone I talk to, which is if you've ever thought that you did not want to be a leader, banish that thought. You do because you may not want to run a company. You may not want to be a CEO, but you want to make a difference in the world. And that's leadership. With that, um, Jeff, thank you so much for for uh, being gracious with your time, helping us understand the state of leadership. And and to our listeners and viewers, like I had prepared a bunch of questions that I want to ask, I actually touched upon almost nothing. So it was it was it was fascinating um, conversation. And 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 Jeff, thank you so much for being patient with me and and helping understand the nuanced world of leadership and 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 giving it no a problem. a very interesting and I, I do appreciate your work and and thank you and you're always welcome back on the podcast wish you success on the book thank you so much on that thank you for having me it was great fun great conversation <laughs>